Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for degrading the life sciences. Today's episode is the next in our In Their Own Words oral history series, which explores the lives of scientists who have made great contributions to their fields. This history is with Dr. Osvaldo Sala, who is the Julie A. Wrigley and Regenson Foundation professor and the founding director of the Global Dryland Center at Arizona State University. We had a great conversation, so with no further ado, let's go to the interview. Dr. Sala, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I really like bioscience. It's one of my uh, favorite journals, and uh, it's great to have this opportunity to chat with you. Great. I appreciate it, and uh, thank you very much for the kind words. Um, why don't we get started with our typical first question, which is, um, when did you first know that you wanted to work in the life sciences? Oh, okay. I think uh, before graduating from high school, I was evaluating choices for uh, career choices. And I, I really had a biology was very appealing to me. But on the other hand, I knew they had to earn my living. So I was, uh, <laughs> a, my father had died uh, young and uh, my mother was a school teacher. So I was very clear that I had to have a career that will I was going to be able to support myself. So I chose to uh, some sort of an applied by what I thought was an uh, applied biology. And I chose to go into agronomy. So my undergraduate degree is in agronomy because I thought that was um, applied biology. And from there, then I veer to where I am now. That is just biology. What sparked that early interest in biology? Oh, I think the the the, the complexity was really uh, very appealing, going from development to ecosystems, and I I thought that that was really uh, very very intellectually very appealing, and I and as I said, I like it very much, but I was afraid that I wasn't gonna get a job. So right. <laughs> I, I decided to do something that was applied and then I did get a job. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about agronomy. What kind of, what kind of uh, job, what kind of professional career were you thinking, you know, that you were going to be entering when you um, decided to pursue that degree? Where did you go to school? That kind of thing. Oh, I, I when I, yeah, when I graduated, I started working on a consultant firm and I worked for probably two years or so in consulting with uh, with farmers and uh, uh, and and this was in Argentina where I'm uh, I went to college and I'm I'm I grew up in Buenos Aires and that was uh, was an interesting job but at the same time uh, I was looking at the I was working, we were mostly working with uh, f private farmers and and people that my peers that they were, or those that were very successful in this business are were those that were able to attract a lot of new clients to, to the firm. And, and I was looking at that and I said, and I realized that the people who attract these new clients were 
because of social connections. They were uh, in the members of the same country club or their parents were, or they played, uh, uh, they sailed together. Or, and I, I was uh, from a middle class, maybe lower middle class, and, and didn't have any of these social connections. So it didn't take me very long to realize that I didn't have the right cards to be very successful there. And at the same time, there was this uh, opportunity. I was sort of an opportunity to work at the university there. And and I I thought that some of my skills match better with the opportunities that were at the university. So I shifted into, and I think it was a good decision. Yeah, I, that's how I, I moved from consulting to to be at the university, yeah, and and I want to I want to jump into you know what you're working at on at the university in a second, but um, you know just for that you know agronomy consulting, you know what kind of what kind of work is that? Is that you know kind of recommending to farmers what sort of soil amendments they should make or correct? I mean, and also it, it was I don't know, there was the there were all wheat growers, so you have to go and check for pests, so you need to count how many. Uh, insects were per square meter and then they say oh, oh you need to spray this with whatever i forgot <laughs> but you with what is your treatment or this is an important rotation if you did three years of corn you should do corn now shift to soybean or uh, so help them not only with the specific uh, crops but also with the assemble of different crops and how they they should be rotation so it's a sort of a uh, counseling farmers on how to manage the, from a biological point of view, like I was telling you about the past, the fertilization, or to some sort of the the economics and management of the farm. And so, how do you then find your way sort of back into the university, as it were? What, what, what's that? What's that first job there? What's the is what's the graduate work? What what do you get into? Oh, oh uh, this was a, a, at the University of Buenos Aires and. I had had a, a very good professor of ecology. And so I went back to work as a, the equivalent of a, an assistant for in that, uh, at the university. And then there I, I realized that in order to make progress within the university, I needed to uh, get a, a graduate degree. And that is when I went to Colorado State University in Fort Collins. And what was the appeal of, of Colorado State at that time? Oh, that was, uh, uh, now I tell them, that I tell people that I study ecology, but in those days, I went to the range science department. That, that department doesn't exist any longer. I mean, most universities in the uh, Western United States had range science department, but now those had have disappeared. <laughs> they are not. They, they now they are sort of a, a ecology departments or something like that within the School of Natural Resources. So, what kinds of things were you actually studying at that time? Oh, I was studying uh, my thesis. I I did a thesis on the importance of small rainfall events. So the basic idea is that in most arid zones, there's a bias to very, very small events. I think that if you think that there is usually 30 events per year in, they say, good number, and 
20 or so are less than five millimeters. And there was, in that, those days, there was this idea of a biologically meaningful rainfall event, that there were large events. And they, my central question was to try to assess whether that was true or not. What happened with, I said, the majority of the water comes into these very small events, less than five millimeters. And what role do they play? Are they useless? Is water that comes and goes? or plants and microbes are able to use them. So I did some uh, experiments where I was uh, creating those, uh, um, experimentally creating in the field those five millimeter events, and then they have different sequences and look at wetting and re-wetting. And indeed, most plants that have, uh, that are in those ecosystems are very well adapted to take advantage of those short pulses of water availability. Plants, microbes, they're all ready. It rains and in hours, they are fully uh, um, operational. They are rapidly growing and fixing carbon and yeah. And so I'm wondering, you know, what aspect of arid lands had that initial appeal for you? What really drew you into that system as one that was, you know, worth studying and worth dedicating a lot of time to? Yeah, so it, it, there, there are several things about it. I mean, I can answer right away. I think I... The simplest answer is I, I really I'm inspired by the openness of the uh, and the big skies of the drylands. So that's that will be a one line. And also I when I talk to my students these days, I I try to emphasize that this idea that we have a very from very early in our career we know exactly we have this long-term goal it's not most of the time what happens i mean we we go from short term to short term and we we jump from it's like when you walk in a in a mountain stream then there are rocks and you jump from one rock to the other and, and it's not that you, you are sort of going somewhere but you are not going in a straight line and and i think uh, i i taught a a seminary here at ASU in a career seminar. And I gave my students to, to read the first chapter of a kind of an autobiography of E.O. Wilson, extraordinary. And he says that he went from, uh, he's from Alabama and he, when he was 13, he knew that he wanted to study ants. And then he went in a beeline from Alabama to Harvard. And that's all he did. <laughs> and I said, this is, in my opinion, the wrong model because it will make all of us in this room, that, that's my class, feel inadequate because you don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> and you was an extraordinary person, but most of us don't. I think most of us are faced with one or two opportunities and don't take one and that sort of a constrain our path and then we find another fork. And each time we find a fork, we make a decision. And, right. and in this case, in, so I don't know if you your career is an E.O. Wilson type career or is <laughs> most of us morals they go we go from where things <laughs> we find a, the, what we think is a path and in a, in when I was in the University of Buenos Aires I, I took an ecology car, course and that professor was was very good and he invited me to do research in Patagonia. 
And I wrote my senior, my senior thesis in looking at primary production uh, in Argentinian grasslands. And I published it in the Journal of Art Environments and or no, general range management a long time ago and uh, this was my introduction to grasslands is because he was interested in grasslands so i didn't have very many opportunities so i did my my senior thesis with him and then kind of was that was what sounded very interesting way i really liked the uh, the ecosystem the and then uh, I went to Colorado State University to Fort Collins that, that at that time was the hub of the International Biological Program. I don't know if you remember that, but there was that was the kind of the first international uh, distributed experiment. Uh, that was probably uh, uh, that I went there towards the end of it, but it uh, so the it was called the IBP it was funded. It was in the there was different IBPs for different uh, countries, and uh, and the IBP uh, was had divided the world in biomes, and they had a de desert biome, a grassland biome, and the Colorado State University and Fort Collins were the hub for the grassland biome. That's how I found it. I said, oh, this is, I studied grassland, I should, could go there. And they, I was lucky that they accepted me. And um, so that was the, the International Biological Program. And the, there was, they had a series of publications. And somehow the, in an, the IBP, in my opinion, was the origin of the LTR network in the, in the U.S., uh, with this idea that it's important to do um, large-scale biology and that it cannot answer all biological questions in, in the local scale. You need to compare biomes and, and biomes occur across continents and nations. So that was very interesting. Okay, and so thinking about, you know, that sort of longer-term research, you know, I'm wondering what type of a role longer-term research has played in your career. Uh, obviously a large one, if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it, the, the, the answer could be radically different. If you look at, at a phenomenon at a scale of a, a year or three years or 15 years, the responses are uh, quite different. And, and the, what you see... I currently have a almost a 15-year drought experiment in in the Jornada long-term ecological research project in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and this is such a wonderful example of it. I think uh, I had exp that experiment reduces precipitation and increases precipitation. In the first three years, the, the experiment did what you expect: the plants produced, and then the the last one there's drought and more when it's irrigated and then that went on for 18 12 years and then at the 12 years in the drought uh, uh, treatments the grasses collapse and disappear and and the shrubs start thriving and uh, and the productivity of the total ecosystem increase 
in the drought relative to the controls and the irrigated. And this was because of the changes in species composition. And those changes in species composition offset the direct impacts of changes in precipitation. I didn't have the foggiest idea that that was going to be the case. And there was uh, no way to predict that that was going to happen. And the only way to do it is to do have those long-term experiments. And that's a, that must have been very surprising because I mean, you know, uh, for my layperson's non-understanding, it would simply be that if you put less water into the into an already arid system, you would not expect to have more productivity. Yeah, the first year or two that that were getting more productivity, it, I I look at the data and I ignore them and says this is a blip on the on the data set. I should just forget. But then it became more, and then it, so this is is basically telling you that the 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 bottom line is that it increases in in, um, in climate change has a direct effect and may have some indirect effect through changes in species that it may or may not may offset the effect of climate change or accelerate. Uh, Jerry Melillo and the Harvard Forest had a, a long term experiment that they did so uh, warming, and you expect that it was. Uh, soil warming was going to increase soil respiration because of more or less the same reason. The crops, uh, then you see the pictures, and then you have the, 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 it's all covered with snow, except the patches that are being warm. And, and indeed, they found an increase in soil respiration for 11 years. And after that, they stopped. <laughs> and they started, the, then the, the warm plots and the controls had the same. A level of soil respiration, and, and and that was a big surprise. And and once you look at it in in hindsight, now you say, oh, okay, so the all the labeled carbon was burned out, and then there's no more carbon to burn, and therefore respiration, the the effect of temperature, stopped. But nobody thought about this until we had a twelve year experiment. And, and it sounds like the kind of thing that you know you you would really want to know if you, especially if you're going to you know be kind of running a global scale um, climate intervention by you know um, pouring a bunch of CO two in the atmosphere. But you know the, there's no way to do it without this long term research. You just no way to know what's absolutely. going Absolutely, you are absolutely right. That, that's absolutely key information because we can bet and, uh, this is what is uh, going to happen to ecosystems and how much uh, that directly affects the carbon balance of the planet. So, no, no, you are absolutely right. This is critical information, but it's very difficult to get and very expensive. And are, there are not very many sources of long-term funding in, uh, in the U.S. Most of us have three-year grants, and it's very difficult to... Uh, support long-term experiments. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Um, let's jump back a little bit and talk about um, you know that that first you know postgraduate um, you know job. What's the, what's the first um, you know professional kind of uh, being a professor, teaching, and, and and that sort of thing? What uh, how do you how do you find your way into that one? Because I think that that's something a lot of our early career listeners will be interested in. Oh, okay. When after I finished my uh, PhD in in Fort Collins, I went back to Argentina and I got a job as assistant professor at the University of Buenos Aires. And I stayed there for two years. And 
I then there was a political collapse in Argentina, and then I I found a, a job at the, in Colorado State University at the National Natural Research Ecology Lab, and I worked there for two years, and then I went back to Argentina, and then I started uh, teaching there and. Uh, that was how in working in research, I went back to Patagonia. So that was my research was always was inspired by that professor. His name is was Soriano, and he was the one who inspired this interest in grasslands. And in, in this case, uh, the Patagonian step. Um, could you talk a little bit about what it was like, um, you know, either more recently or or back then in that early career stage, doing research in Argentina? Um, because I, you know, I note that you know, sort of international collaboration is you know a major uh, part of your career and and something that you know you've you've done a lot of work on. Um, but I'm kind of wondering for you know those who are sort of U.S. based and tend to view things through sort of a U.S. lens, um, we may not have the we don't have the perspective of what it's like to do science, um, you know, elsewhere in the world. So you know, could perhaps tell us a little bit about those types of experiences. Oh, um, uh, my impression is that the uh, students in Argentina were and are very bright and uh, and very curious. The um, Resources are always scarce. Things that are sort of common for us, from access to library, access to journals, and all those things are much more uh, difficult there and scarce. And and here we also you are working in the lab, and you you I don't know a little you need a little washer for and just just turn on and, and write to. Jeff Bezos and Jeff Bezos <laughs> delivers by, <laughs> by the end of the day and then you keep working and that doesn't that was that is much more difficult in 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 the developing world. Yeah, I would I would imagine that would have that would have been a you know a challenge. But um do you think it was particularly valuable for you in your career to be able to sort of, you know, um compare similar um, you know, dry lands across uh, different continents, continents, because a lot of times, you know, what I end up talking to people about is, you know, they've, they've really keyed in on one spot and, you know, they've really looked at it intensely. Yeah, I think it was, it, 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 it formed my view of ecology, working in Patagonia. I work also in South Africa. I work in in North America and in North America, I work in Colorado grasslands. Now I work in the uh, grasslands in, in in the Chihuahua Desert in New Mexico. And then I spent two years at Stanford was a Guggenheim fellow, and I worked with annual grasslands in California. And so all that sort of created, without me knowing, sort of a broad perspective of uh, grasslands, drylands, grazing lands, and people too. Different. The, the ranchers of Colorado are very different than the nomads of China or people. And yeah, so all those. Yeah, that was me just entering through just being in different places and not not. Uh, doing it on purpose and following you know the the next rock and the hop across the across the creek as it were in, in whatever direction yeah. it might lie 
that you like that metaphor. <laughs> I do. I think that, I think that's a very powerful one, and it and it kind of speaks to descriptions that I've heard from many others as well. You know, who also have that similar experience of. Um, not knowing exactly what the next step is going to be, um, and and we talk wind up talking a lot about you know the the issue of serendipity and you know just sort of uh, you know, taking advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. Yeah, and also I think that is very important for early career uh, people that uh, because the as much as I admire you know, Wilson, he is not the right example. It makes us uh, all feel inadequate, and if you don't know. <laughs> And, uh, and sort of give us that uh, even if you don't have it, you can have a you can get to the end of the to the origin of this of the creek or the stream, but may not be a, a straight line. Had some sort of a long term, but also be aware of all, all these uh, other opportunities that may turn out to be great opportunities. That makes sense. Um, what ultimately brought you to Brown? It's, it's a combination of things. I mean, the, there are uh, different different answers to that question. I think Brown University was trying to uh, develop, a, lo- launch something called the Environmental Change Initiative. Was kind of a center, a cross interdisciplinary center, uh, across different uh, departments. Go from geology to biology to the social sciences. And at that time, I also had uh, some uh, experience leading this international uh, organization. I was the president of something called SCOPE, the Scientific Committee on Problems in the Environment that was headquartered in Paris. And so I had some experience with interdisciplinarity with I, I wasn't upset talking to sociologists and i can uh, uh, drink beer and wine with them and i can <laughs> and uh, and through uh, and i think brown wanted to have a an interdisciplinary uh, project in environmental sciences and i thought that this was kind of like a good opportunity for me to uh, to move into this, uh, Brown also was a great, a great experience for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in that. You know, focus on interdisciplinarity because it's something that you know, we talk a lot about now. Um, but was it was it talked about as much then? It, it sounds like it probably wasn't something that was conducted as much then. That that is those are the two key words that you say: talk and conduct. Uh, say. So there, there was a lot of talking, but very few walk the talk. Like, uh, so uh, just to give you an example, I mean, everybody says that their their universities, their programs are interdisciplinary. Nobody says we are not. We are. <laughs> <laughs> no one says we're in a silo. We don't talk to anybody no, outside. We don't know. Yeah. No. But then you you yeah. Nobody says I'm not. I'm for. <laughs> this is the come to the silo university. But in. But then you you see, for example, that where tenure is, so there's a lot of these interdisciplinary centers and there are hundreds of them across the nation. And, but there are multiple modes of doing that. And one is that you keep the, 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 the string of power to the, into the anchor to the traditional department. The power is tenure, money, space. And so if you, and this is, okay, this is an interdisciplinary activity, but 
who decides who gets tenure, promotion, salary, all those are in the traditional departments and decides who allocation of resources, money, space, then you don't have an, inter, an interdisciplinary program. You have an interdisciplinary program in talk, but not in right. walk. <laughs> because people know. I mean, if, if this is the, the department who's going to decide how much I make, if I get tenure or not, I'm going to be an active member of that department, not of the internet, interdisciplinary unit. And, and that is very interesting because the you almost can predict the success of this interdisciplinary unit. I mean, success means truly creating an interdisciplinary environment by the degree of bottom-up bottom, bottom or top-down efforts. So universities and systems that are mostly bottom-up are... It's very difficult for them to develop interdisciplinary programs. Why? Because each group is has all the rewards to maximize the return to their silo. So if you are a chemistry professor, you need to maximize the number of students that go through chemistry. You, your, your rewards are not in collaborating with the sociologist. Right. So... The, uh, so you almost can predict how much it is because in, and then the, you know, in order to get in a truly interdisciplinary program, you need to go from the top down. And uh, I, I remember this anecdote that uh, the, the, the chair of the engineering uh, department went to talk to the provost at Brown and the, his name was Bob Zimmer, and now is the president of University of Chicago. He says, I need uh, two uh, faculty lines for whatever. And, and Bob told him, I'll give you four half lines. Go talk to Osvaldo for the other half lines. So, <laughs> so it, it's, it forced him to yeah, have us collaborating. And this, he did the same thing with economics. He did the same thing with many other opportunities and that's it not only comes from the top down right it can't i mean it can't work if all the if, the, if all the loci of power are within the departments themselves and yeah that makes sense correct yeah now i'm wondering you know what what, what kind of work were you um doing there you know what was the the product of this interdisciplinary collaboration what kinds of you know things were you investigating oh my research was always focused in in drylands i had nsf funded projects and they were all the, the only difference instead of driving we were flying here for it to the southwest for the summer or so we, our field work was all uh, in the drylands and we hired a lot of people that they were very diverse and they were trying to create that uh, in, in an environment where of collaboration, of understanding each other, and it was early on, but it was, I think, it was pretty successful. Yeah, and and what kinds of things do you know uh, geologists, sociologists bring to bear, um, you know, in, in that kind of research? All the issues of, of global change are prime for interdisciplinarity, because you cannot think about the carbon cycle without taking into account the geological component and biophysical component and biological component. And 
And so those are, and of course, social component. And I had a lot of, of really great colleagues and there, and I worked with the people that were, I remember, uh, sociologists that were, I, I still uh, keep in touch with them and collaborate and uh, looking at very large scale phenomena like uh, Katrina, I mean, this hurricane, and has clearly social component. It clearly has. Uh, and that has sort of a left an impact on, on me to be able to feel, think like a sociologist or think like a geologist. And, and it's kind of scary somehow because you most likely you're going to say things that are pretty stupid or they're very well known. So the interdisciplinarity carries out this uh, you have to encourage to people to make mistakes. They don't, and if they are not making enough mistakes, it's because they're not taking enough risk. And the, it's easier just to be in a very narrow field where you are pretty certain you know everything there or- More than everybody else. <laughs> more than everybody else. Yeah, exactly. You said it really well. But if you start working with a sociologist and trying to say something and writing proposals that are interdisciplinary, you very quickly run into saying things that are well-known or you're wrong or, but it takes some intellectual courage to go into those unknowns or unknowns for me or, and they, they, all of them have to agree, okay, so we're gonna work together, but we're gonna accept that the other one doesn't know much about what we, we know a lot. <laughs> And if you fail to do that, you know, you're at the risk of you're not being able to understand systems in a way that allows you to kind of look out over, a, you know, a long future, for instance. You can't you can't make predictions about biodiversity in 2100 um, if you don't do that kind of thing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Let's now kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, some what you've been working on, you know, recently. Um and, and, and as perhaps a continuation of, of you know, things that you've done before, but what, what's, what sort of things are you doing right now? Oh, okay. I have a lot, a lot of uh, fun projects. <laughs> I um, look, I, I think I talked a little bit to you about this long-term uh, simulations of climate change, where I've done changes in precipitation uh, for the next, uh, for 12 or 15 years. So we created uh, experimental drought. We created uh, experimental uh, deluge or very wet conditions. And also we've, uh, we have a lot of work that we've done uh, trying to separate the effects of changes in, in, in the mean from changes in the variance. So let me explain a little bit more. I mean, we know, and then in the newspapers know, the public knows that the, in addition of our planet getting warmer or drier or wetter, we are gonna move into a, a planet that is more, much more variable. There are gonna be more droughts, more ver uh, wet conditions. But the, the droughts are going to be followed by extremes, extreme wet. So the extremes are becoming the norm. And so I try to separate the effect of the 
extremes from changes in the mean. And even though there's, the extremes are very popular in the press, I mean, that's what people uh, uh, read about climate change as a heat wave. There is this, then. But however, we scientists have mostly studied the impact of changes in a, in a given quantity. There are hundreds of, you know, thousands of papers that have looked at the, what is the effect of increasing two degrees temperature or doubling CO2 or, or reducing precipitation or increasing precipitation. All those are changes in the, but changes in the variability, regardless, they can have uh, also very, very important and uh, impacts on ecosystems. And somehow studying the extremes is an excellent window to see the impact of the, on the future. Because the, some of the extremes in 2022 resemble what is going to be the norm in 2100. And so uh, I think I'm uh, trying to address that question with experiments in the field, with uh, observations. And I, I also do simulation modeling and then simulate the uh, this modeling allows us to go for hundreds of years. You can simulate and increase the precipitation variability, for example, and look what is most important. You say the degree of those extremes or the duration of the extremes, and you can answer those questions or at least provide some guidelines to develop experiments to finally test those questions. So that's kind of the things that we're doing. That sounds like really exciting work. Um, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about scientific societies and the leadership thereof. You know, it occurs to me that um, that's a role that is incredibly difficult. It's a, a, a very challenging managerial task. And unlike, you know, many of the other things uh, that scientists are trained to do, um, this is something for which, you know, you might not necessarily have the same kind of preparation. And I'm just wondering, you know, what it's like to jump into that experience, uh, you know, kind of from the get-go and without necessarily having been formally trained in the task. Correct. You, you, you're, you're right. I think uh, I was, uh, I told you, was president of SCOPE, president of the Ecological Society. So I, uh, I worked with four or five societies in, in sort of different leadership positions. And it, it, it is remarkable how they changed in the throughout my career. I think the Ecological Society of America, for example, the reason why I joined them sort of disappear now because I was very interested in receiving the journal, the journal <laughs> that was ecology. That was my, when I was a graduate student. But now that, that was one of my motivations. But now I think that that motivation disappeared. Everything is online and everything can be... Uh, reach from no matter where you are even if i uh, I'm, I'm writing a paper i'm here over there is my bookshelf but sometimes it's easier for me to click here than go to my bookshelf <laughs> and it is here so i don't go to the library very often and uh, so societies have changed in in several uh respects and so i think that it become more and more important as a voice 
representing their their members in front of uh, institutions. So just uh, let me uh, give you an example. When I was president of the Ecological Society of America, the uh, NSF, the National Science Foundation, was uh, started this policy of allowing only a one proposal submitted per person per year. They were, the, I think the rationale was that they were overwhelmed with uh, proposals. They, the system was, couldn't handle that. And, and so the ecological societies thought that that was an issue that affected it, their members because their members thought that that was, was negative in many respects. First, this discourages interdisciplinarity uh, because uh, if you only can submit one proposal, people rapidly migrate into the silo and try to support their own major uh, area in the, of research in their lab, but it cannot afford to use that card to collaborate in, with other people. I mean, and it certainly uh, discouraged the in, in new ideas that are kind of a high risk. And so as president of the Ecological Society, we talked to NSF, we, we wrote uh, letters with, with other organizations like uh, American Geophysical Union, and we presented a voice that uh, represented a large group of our uh, biologists and ecologists, and they couldn't have done that individually. So that is an example of the new role, what I think is a very important role of uh, societies is representing our members in front of a institutions in front of a the society at large. Yeah, that makes sense because otherwise, you know, you're you're not you know in a position to kind of reach those bodies, um, you know, from your own office at a you know at a university. And also can go back and it can be communication in both directions. If the National Science Foundation or the Department of the Interior or anybody wants to know what biologists think about that, they cannot just write to uh, biologists.com. You have to go through these organizations. And it, that is sort of a, how our society is organized. And yeah, that, that's that's interesting. It reminds me of something um, of a friend in the Foreign Service uh, said one time, which was that you know somebody said to him, you know, why why don't people just pick up the phone now that we have this great communication? He said, well, there's got to be somebody on the other end of the line to to pick it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's very complicated when we're very many when we are filtering. So the societies have changed enormously. I still think that the the one of the prime roles of societies is is the create and support those opportunities for meetings, for uh, communication. And I think uh, even uh, uh, you and I are having this great Zoom conversation, but it's difficult to replace the one-on-one conversations and these uh, casual ones that, that usually yield this great uh, new insights. Yeah, that that makes sense. Scott and I were just talking the other day about how you know the fact that nobody's you know sparked any brand, brilliant collaborations over a Zoom meeting. It's it's you know they serve their purpose, but it's 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 not it's not the same. Correct, and also it, because it chops 
all the informal relationships. I mean, I can have a meeting with a student or a collaborator about something, but it, all this uh, it, spontaneous it's spontaneity it doesn't exist in Zoom. I'm not going to have a, a, a Zoom with you for two minutes or five. I'm, it's too much work. So all those little sort of a small conversations disappear. Yeah, that, that that makes sense. Then, you know, once you have our, our basis for the for the conversation, um, I'm just being conscious of the time. I, I want to ask you a couple of you know, kind of uh, of quick, shorter ones. Um, you know, if these spark a, a, an interesting memory, um, feel free to jump in. If if they don't, we can just skip it and move on to the next one. Um, but I was just you know, kind of wondering, you know, stuff like, you know, what was your best day on the job? If you had to highlight a single one. Oh, I, I think I, I got a lot of real pleasure when I can work on manuscripts and it sit with an idea for, I can think shallow, but if I stay, stay, stay getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper to the essence of a problem that I'm, and all of a sudden when I see something that I didn't see at the beginning, that gives me some sort of a special reward. I don't know if it's some sort of a oxytocin, coming out of my <laughs> front lobe, but I do feel that, that pleasure of discovery. doesn't need to discover something big, but discover how this paragraph works or discover what is the essence of this manuscript. This is, I mean, worth me thing is, no, I don't enjoy that, but it, trying to find a story, trying to find a story that is meaningful, that is creates a lot. Give me a lot of pleasure. Does it make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. It's and it's and it's well reflected in your writing too. But it's just it's an it's an interesting answer that I don't think many scientists would give. Uh, people often feel a little uncomfortable with the writing of manuscripts. Mm. And I think I learned that part of from my advisor. His name is Bell Lownroth, and Bell also he is he's a deep thinker. He can think about problems deep and for a long time. And not very many people can do that. You, you need to learn to sit there and think about the same thing. Stay there, keep thinking. <laughs> you think you know, but just stay, stay. <laughs> and don't move and until you, in, you have to have some sort of a faith that something is gonna happen. Sometimes nothing happens, but sometimes after some time, you start seeing things from a different perspective, and that's where you get those meaningful changes. Or yeah, and that that actually leads me directly to one of the next, um, you know, kind of shorter questions, which is, you know, what are the big differences maybe in the way that science is conducted today versus you know the way it was earlier in your career? Um, is that is that time for reflection and, and you know deep thinking about hard problems? Is that something that has you know fallen by the wayside, perhaps? Yeah, I think it is, we are all are forced to this uh, mini small, we work in very, very small chunks of time instead of working on. on uh, yeah, instead of working on long, longer term thoughts. Yeah. And it, for example, I'm writing a proposal with a, with a colleague now, and I told him we were, it's just, I'm going to turn off the email, my phone. And for this morning, I'm going to work on this proposal and I'm ignore everything else. And, and then I just couldn't do it for five, 10 minutes and went 
downstairs, get a cup of coffee, get, and, and then, but I couldn't open the email, kind of open, and then I, I start getting into what I was trying to do, and it, it got the, the whole, that is qualitatively different view. I can feel that, and I, it gives me a lot of pleasure to do that. But I don't have, I mean, I don't have the opportunities. Now, I uh, uh, have an hour talking to you, but I have to write two promotion tenure letters. I have to do all these other things that is part of my job. So I'm, I'm okay, but it, it's, and, and most of my research is fit in between those gaps of doing other things. So... I think that that's sort of a change that I think that we become more conscious. We should be able to proactively control. No, that makes sense. And that's, you know, and that's something, you know, I think all, we all of us struggle with in one sense or another. Even right now, I'm also, you know, playing the role of audio engineer as well. So I'm having to look at this other screen while we're talking. And, um, you know, I, I wish we were back in the good old days where we'd be in a nice re recording studio with three engineers uh, handling the whole thing on our behalf. But, um, yeah, we, we, I certainly wrote fewer papers than, than I write now. I, I crack many more papers now. And, but I think the, the, the depth that I, I think it was different, I think. Um, and I guess one last question. Um, if you had to give advice to, um, you know, people early in their careers right now as scientists, um, what kinds of things would you tell them? You know, what, what sorts of things should they be looking forward to in the future as, you know, at least ways to anticipate those, those next steps that they might take, even if they don't know exactly the direction that they'll be in? Oh, I think it, it, I would say enjoy every bit of it. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it is fun to discover is fun. Being in the field is fun. Writing papers is fun. Just look at the fun thing and, and you're going to do okay. You're going to do great. <laughs> and think about uh, James' uh, metaphor of the creek and going from one rock to the other. Don't need to think about how long is the creek. Just go from one rock to the other. I, I, I like that. I really do enjoy that metaphor. And um, I would also just like to thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Sala. All right. Excellent. <laughs> And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.